Good morning. Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome as we continue our series in 1 Corinthians called Grow Up, as Pastor Bertram mentioned. Um, I'm going to be tackling, as we draw towards the end of this book, which has been a, a real blessing, um, a real time of growth for a lot of us. Um, we've, a lot of us have learned a lot from what we've studied through the teachings of Paul in 1 Corinthians and how it relates to us. So today I'm going to be tackling uh, chapter 15 and I'm going to be looking at verses 29 to 34. And the title of today's message is, Let's Eat and Drink, For Tomorrow We Die. So I'm just going to read the text and pray, and then we'll continue to hear what the Lord has to say to us today. So, 1 Corinthians 15, 29 to 34. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do you gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the, the beasts at, at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So let's pray, and then we'll break the text down and we'll see what God has to say to us today. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the effect it has on us, Lord. Thank you for the positive effects it has on us, Lord. Thank you for the guidance that it gives us, Lord. I pray that today's teaching will speak to us, Lord, that, Lord, I will move out the way today, Lord, and it will be you that speaks, Lord, that you will guide us and direct us through this text, some of it difficult, some parts of it will be challenging, Lord. We pray that we would use those challenging parts, Lord, to help us, to grow us, Lord, because ultimately you're more interested in our character than in our comfortability. So, Lord, we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at verse 29. And this is a bit of a challenging text. Verse 29, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now this seems to be a bit of a mysterious verse that has just been thrown into the scripture. I've read that there have been over 30 different attempts to um, interpret this verse by different scholars. So what chance as a novice like me got. So does this verse mean that the Bible teaches that people can be baptized on behalf of the dead? Simply put, no. 
Baptism of the dead is a notion that you can be baptised on behalf of someone who's no longer with us. Someone that has passed away. And this baptized baptism can lead to a good outcome. The person may be in hell. And by being baptised for them, they would be raised up to heaven. Now the Mormons quote this verse as a justification for their belief that a fellow Mormon can be baptised on the behalf of a, a relative or in place of a relative who died without being a Mormon so that they can have a Mormon afterlife. Now, when interpreting the Bible, it's important to recognise the difference between something in the Bible that is being mentioned and something that is being taught as truth. When interpreting difficult Bible passages, there are two rules. Number one, always let scripture interpret scripture. Two, always let the clear text give understanding to the unclear text. Let the things that are clear, plain and obvious give light to the verses that we don't understand. So, let's see what the Bible does not teach regarding this. Does not teach. It doesn't teach baptism by proxy for the dead. What does proxy mean, you may say? Proxy means to stand in the place of someone else. It's the authority to stand in for or to represent someone else, in this case, by being baptised on behalf of someone who has died. Paul did not teach that a person who has died could be saved in any way in the afterlife by someone being baptised in his or her place. This passage, sorry, this is the only passage in the scripture where it is mentioned, not taught, regarding baptism for the dead. So let's shine the light of Scripture on this verse and let's let the Bible interpret the Bible. You see, the Bible is absolutely clear on how a person can enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's by the grace of God alone, through faith alone. It's given as a free gift. It's a gift to be received by the person's faith in the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus for their sin. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Now here's another teaching from the Bible that must be understood. We must settle the matter regarding our eternal destination in this life. We will not be able to settle it in the life to come. There's no settling it after death. Now, this is a big problem for those that teach that false doctrine of purgatory. The Catholics teach that purgatory is a place where the soul goes to after death to be cleansed from sin. Sins that have not been fully satisfied during this life. 
They don't recognize that Jesus' sacrifice means that we are already cleansed, declared righteous, forgiven, redeemed, and sanctified. Is the teaching of purgatory in agreement with the Bible? Absolutely not. You see, to say that we must atone for our sins by being cleansed in, purgat in purgatory is to deny the sufficiency of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. The notion that those who are saved by grace through faith have to suffer for their sins after death is contrary to everything the Bible says about salvation. 1 John 1 John 2.2 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. Not, only, not ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Now, for the unbeliever, there are two things that you can be certain of. One, one day you will check out of life, like the rest of us. And two, you will face judgment. But check it. The good news is Christ has died for your sins and will receive those who repent and put their faith and trust in him only in this lifetime. These are certainties that the Bible teaches. They are clear and they are undeniable. You see, the Bible makes it clear that a dead person cannot be saved by the baptism of someone else on their behalf. Baptism demonstrates that the old way of life has ended and a new life of faith in Jesus Christ has begun. It provides a visual testimony, a public declaration to the world that symbolically identifies a new believer with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if baptism was necessary for salvation, Jesus Christ telling the thief on the cross that this very night you will be with me in paradise was a lie. Why? Because there was no chance for him to be baptized. The brother was nailed to a cross. Being baptized on behalf of a dead person represents a number of serious errors. One is that we can we are not one is that we are not saved by works. We are not saved by being baptized or going to church, by preaching in a pulpit, by singing in the worship team, by teaching Sunday school, helping the poor, or being kind to others. None of these things, as valuable as they are, can save us. It is almost blasphemous to say that we can be saved by just going to church because it puts coming to church on the same level as the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The only actual work that we can be saved by is the work of Jesus on that cross. Here are some verses to prove that. Romans 4, 5. To, and to the one who does not work but believes to him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Titus 3.5 
He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Romans 11.6 But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And finally, John 6, 28 and 29. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So let's get back to verse 29, which is speaking about being baptized on behalf of the dead. Could this verse that scholars have been wrestling with be as simple as this? Is Paul saying that if there is no resurrection of the dead, remember the context is the resurrection, then why are people being baptized in the name of a dead person? That would be foolish. Could it be as simple as that? So let's move on to verse 30. Of First Corinthians. Cool. Verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? Let's look for a moment at some of the things that Paul went through. Second Corinthians 11 verses 23 to 27. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, five times I received at the hand of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea. In frequent journeys, in dangers of rivers, in dangers of robbers, in dangers of my own people. Danger from the Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many sleepless nights. In hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. Now, you definitely have to be a madman to go through all that if there is no resurrection. When we used to go out on the streets of Leicester Square, there was one particular night when um, the, 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 the team leader, Robbie Hughes, that did all the preaching, he couldn't make it. So he, he called his brother called Barney, to do the open-air preaching for him, to stand in his place. I remember it was just after the Westboro Baptist Church, which is an extremist um, church in the US. They were pictured on the news claiming that they were going to burn a stack of um, Korans. So what does Barney do? Barney decides that he's going to use that as a springboard for his preaching. <coughs> This didn't go down too well with the Muslims. As you can imagine, <laughs> they went nuts. All hell broke loose. 
there was nearly an argument, uh, sorry, nearly a riot that night in Leicester Square. The brother didn't mean no harm. He was just using it as an analogy. But as soon as they heard that word, burn the Quran, that was it. <laughs> We're going to go crazy. And they did. So, yeah, it could have been a dangerous situation. So watch what you're preaching before you start preaching on the street. Okay. The argument is plain. It would be foolish to go through such pains, Paul is saying. Paul's, we're talking about what Paul's gone through. Putting yourself at risk unless there was a glorious resurrection. So let's look at verse 31. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ our Lord. I die every day. Interesting verse. Now, this is one of those verses that Christians find hard to put into practice. While the phrase die to self, which is branded about by Christians, isn't explicitly found in the scripture, it does express the true essence of the Christian life, which is to take up your cross and follow Christ. The nearest verses found in the Bible are where Paul writes in Romans and Galatians. Romans 6.6 6. We know that our old self was crucified in order that the new body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be, no longer be enslaved to sin. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live, lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I die every day. Every day we need to die to our pride, die to our selfishness, to put away our ego. We need to die to that me, myself, and I attitude. How many of you know that we can, we can die to self at work with our boss and our co-workers, but we can't die to self with our spouses. We can't die to self with our, some of our brothers and sisters. You know, if we're really honest, we like things our own way. We want to be the center. We want to be catered for. Everything needs to be catered to our needs. It's really all about us. How about doing something for someone else? Oh, no. That's too much like dying to self. I don't want to die to self. I want to live to self. Who wants to die to self? I remember witnessing to a couple of brothers in, in Brixton. They were as drunk as a sack. One of them was adamant, absolutely adamant, cast iron belief that he could live as he wanted to from Monday to Saturday. He could get drunk, fornicate, curse, indulge in drugs and every kind of sin. As long as he went into the confession box on a Sunday... Him and God were cool. Even though I tried to correct that line of thinking, he was adamant that he was right. 
Why? Because that's what his priest had taught him. One of them looked like he wanted to fight me. <laughs> Such was his conviction. So what does the Bible say about our old nature versus our new nature in Christ? Here's some long text. Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. Verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the, fut in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the, from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to, sensual, to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you, have, not the way you learned Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Christ. To put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, Put away all falsehood. Let each one speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Do not be angry. Sorry. Be angry. <laughs> and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, and along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Paul says it's a daily thing. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that, don't we? So let's look at verse 32 of 1 Corinthians. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beast at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's just party hard. Because when it's over, it's over. We lie in a box. We get eaten by worms. So let's get drunk. Watch some porn movies. Smoke some drugs. Sleep around. Let's just live for pleasure. Because this life is all there is. Right? Wrong. Now, Corinth was a center 
of what is called the Epicurean philosophy. What's that? You say. Exactly what I said when I read it. This philosophy taught that one should just, li- just live life for pleasure because there's no eternity. So mankind should eat, drink and be merry while we're alive for tomorrow we die and that's it. This philosophy had filtered into part of the Corinth church. When we talk to unbelievers about the concept of heaven and hell and judgment and eternal punishment, what's their usual answer? I'm okay going to hell. My friends are going to be there. It's going to be a party. I don't have a problem with it. They believe that heaven would be hell for them and that hell would be like heaven. Wow. It's that mindset that thinks, I don't want to live a life of no pleasure to gain eternal pleasure that may not even happen. Therefore, they look for satisfaction in this life and give themselves up to all sorts of unrestrained pleasure in this life. Now, as believers, the scripture tells us what awaits the Christians in the next life. This is what the Christian has to look forward to. The Christian. Those that are saved. Believers. Revelations 21, verses 1 to 5. I use this when I'm preaching, just to give people a picture of what, why we're preaching and why we do this stuff. Because this is what's awaiting us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Check it. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. You see, God is not a man that he should lie. You can take this to the bank, Christians. If you have any doubt, read this stuff. Read this stuff. So what does the Bible have to say to those who say, I'm okay going to hell? Those that reject the saving message of the gospel. Revelations 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolatries, and all liars, liars as well, on the same level as murderers and sexual immorality and sorcerers and idolaters, what's liars doing there? 
everyone lies. It says their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. Wow. So, what does, people, what does Paul say about the people we know that have this let's live for pleasure in this life? Those that have that perspective. Verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Do not be deceived. Don't fool yourself. Question. Who are you hanging out with? Who are the people that you are keeping close company with? You see, they will either influence you for good or for evil. Bad company corrupts good morals. It's never the other way around. It's never good company will correct bad habits. Watch out for who your kids are hanging out with. They will either influence them for good or for evil. It reminds me of growing up and we all had that particular friend that was, was troublesome, like that spider in Desmond's. That friend that nearly every time you was with them would land you in trouble. Your parents would say to you, you know what, stay away from them. But because you were deceived into thinking they weren't that bad, you was like, boy, they ain't really that bad. Don't watch my parents. And you'd end up in trouble. We all had those people that lived near us. I, we had two of them on our estate. They would just terrorize the estate every time they come out. One of them actually shot me up the bum with an air gun when I was a young man. Yeah, man, they used to terrorize us. But you know what? One of them died recently. You know, I got to know him and he, he turned out to be a really nice guy. <laughs> I think it was just the other guy that was with him that was a bad influence on him. But as I was preparing this message, I thought, wow, look at that. If this brother died outside of Christ, he will have to give an account for shooting me up the bum with an air gun, not a real gun, on the day of judgment. You see, the resurrection of Christ should be our motivation for living godly lives. You see, if there's no resurrection, then there's no judgment. If there's no judgment, then there's no eternal life. No punishment. If there is no eternal punishment, then what's the need for good morals? How many kids have grown up in church and in Christian homes that are now in prison for getting involved in gun crime and knife crime? Bad company corrupts good morals. How many kids have gone off to university and are no longer Christians? Bad company corrupts good morals. 
Yeah, but Jesus sat with sinners and prostitutes. So isn't it hypocritical to say we, should just, we shouldn't associate with bad company? After all, I'm hanging out with them so that I can witness to them. We don't want people to think that Christians are square. I want them to know that I'm a sinner like them and that Christ came to save sinners. You see, bad company may not only be the people that we socialise with. Who are you keeping company with on social media? Ouch. I've had to unfriend some unbelievers because, you know, people just send you friend requests and because you, you know them and stuff and you're not trying to be holier than thou. And you, and you friend them and, and before you know it, they're posting all this off-key stuff and you're like, I can't, be, I can't have this person as a friend. And then you have to un, unfriend them because the stuff is off-key. It's not good for you. What's your TV and internet diet like? Remember, your eyes are the windows to your soul. Bad company corrupts good morals. Look at verse 34 as we wind up soon. I promise. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul tells the Corinthians to wake up. Don't you know there are people out there that have no knowledge of God? The only knowledge they have of God is you, but you're sleeping. You see, our lives may be the only knowledge of God that our unsaved co-workers, friends, family members have. And all they see is us living lives not surrendered to God. And it's that standard by which they judge Christianity by. You're the standard. There are people around us who have no knowledge of God. They don't know the gospel. Paul says, wake up. Now finally, I heard a story about a missionary that really challenged me. This missionary was on his third scouting trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo to plant a church. At the end of the service, an older gentleman came up to him and said, Sir, can I ask you a question? Sure, he said. He said, I want to know, what I want to know is where have you been for the last 20 years? Missionary said, I'm not sure what you mean. I've been in Kenya for 15 years, and, and before that I was in the US. He said, no, that's not what I want to know. I want to know, where have you been for the last 20 years? He said, I don't understand the question. He said, let, the gentleman said, let me say it like this. I'm saved. I know that I'm going to heaven when I die. He said, according to what I know now, my wife died a few years ago, and she's not in heaven. And if she's not in heaven, missionary, that means she's in hell. He said, I know my wife, missionary, because we were married for many years. 
I know if she had heard what I heard, she would have believed. So missionary, I want to know where you've been for the last 20 years. He said, missionary, I had two sons who died in the war. And my sons, when they died, were not saved. And my sons were not saved because they never heard the gospel. All they knew was a Catholic church. According to what I now know, my boys are not in heaven. So missionary, I want to know where you've been for the last 20 years. Now, the missionary started flippantly making excuses. There's a war going on. This is a dangerous place. You should be lucky that we're here now. As he was making those excuses, his heart dropped. He said, wait a minute. What are those excuses in the face of someone's wife and sons being in hell? He bowed his head and said, I don't know where we've been for the last 20 years, but there's somebody here now. When the Holy Spirit opens the door for us to share the gospel with someone and we don't, Paul says, it's a shame. As believers, we can't go everywhere, but God has things for us to do where we are now. What has God got for you to do? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the witness that it is to us. We thank you, Lord, it's nourishment to us, Lord. We thank you that it helps us to grow. Thank you, Lord, for the ability and the grace to be able to stand here and share your word with those around us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would take what we've heard today, meditate on it, act on it, and use it as a tool for us to get out of our comfort zone. Lord, you are graceful and merciful. Lord, we pray for those that do not know you, that heard some of the harshness of, of parts of this message. And Lord, that they would come to know you, Lord, that they would repent, fall on their knees before you and ask you for forgiveness. So Lord, we pray and give you thanks and pray that you would keep us as we continue in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.